one of the elders here at Peninsula Grace and the lead teacher. Um, it is good to be with you this morning. We just sang about the reality that God gives us our breath, as Bridget mentioned, and therefore it is only right as an act of worship uh, to surrender that breath back to him and to use that breath uh, to praise his name uh, and none others, including our own. And, and we also, we know all things belong to him and therefore it is right that all things are given unto his glory for his purposes. And, and part of that's our pocketbook. And we just wanted to celebrate this last Christmas Eve as we had our, our service, those who were uh, online or, or here in the building. Man, the last couple, we always take an offering to give to those in need. And we've had, you know, years where we've had, you know, a couple thousand dollars. It's been amazing to see uh, what the Lord has been doing through the generosity of our people this this year, uh, as we counted it all up, we had $7,421 come in. So we praise God for that. Uh, it goes to two places. 50% of it goes to Love, Inc., which is our, our local uh, a Christian nonprofit that helps uh, r- distribute those uh, resources to our neighbors in need. And then the other 50% uh, is in-house, our benevolent fund that we give to those in our family, our spiritual family here that we know of that have needs as well. So I just wanted to thank you for that generosity in a difficult year. Uh, we saw uh, the budget end 2020 in the black, the generosity, this, the gifts that you all gave to the staff and just above and beyond. So I just wanted to say thank you in the name of Jesus for that. Uh, we're going to start this morning by playing a little game that I like to call Fall in the Blinks. Uh, no, no, I didn't see what I did there. I put the wrong vowels in. Uh, so we're going to fill in the blanks. You're gonna, I'm going to put a, a, a verse on the screen with a blank there. And when I point to you, I want you to in unison say the word. We'll see if we all say the same word or not. First one, blank. The Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The word is? Love. Wow. Blank. Your neighbor as yourself. The word is? Love. Anyone who does not blank does not know God because God is blank. Word is? notice in a pattern here by this all people will know that it'd be funny if the last one wasn't Uh, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have blank for one another and all God's people said come on now God makes it abundantly clear in his word that as Jesus followers our message and our lives are to be marked by thank you okay let's promise this last time I'll do that but um in the words of the 1993 hit single our million dollar question is what is love Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. No more. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> uh, all right, I got that out of my system. Uh, today, what we've done is we've emptied the meaning of the word love. We're in the same breath. We'll say, I love Jesus, and I also love coffee, right? And we can put those on the same level. If you don't believe me, there are mugs to back up what I'm saying here. Um, the world teaches us that love is whatever you want it to be. Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the uh, author of the, the Broadway smash hit Hamilton, in his acceptance speech, he famously quoted, he said, love is love is love is love is love. Is, and either he was a scratch CD, which really dates me, uh, or or uh, he has a different definition. What, what I think he means by that and what our culture today means by that is that love, you get to make the definition of love. That love is whoever you want to love, however you want to love them. And of course, as we return to our study of 1 Timothy today, we're going to talk about the truth in love. There is a truth in love. And what we're about to look at in this next verse, if that's your meaning of love, that love is love is love is love, then first. Timothy chapter 1 verse 3 won't make a lot of sense. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be here in 1 Timothy 1 this morning. 
He says in verse 3, Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Don't teach anything other than what we teach. Now, at first, that seems like a weird way to start if you're going to talk about love, right? Uh, our culture today said that's not love. That's narrow-mindedness, that you know the truth, that, that ours is different than yours, and it's wrong. That's self-righteous. That's exclusive. That's intolerant. That's arrogant. Lin-Manuel Miranda would say, how dare you impose your views of love on mine? Love is love is love is love. But the Bible emphatically says, no, love is not love. God is love. Amen. First John 4 says this as much. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever ha loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. He is the definition of love. And so love is not doing whatever you say is love. It's doing whatever God says is love. And we're going to see from this morning in God's word that one of the things that love does, that love is, love stands against false teaching. That's the first blank. If you don't have, uh, there's bulletins out in the foyer, uh, in the long blue table there in the middle if you want to grab one. We've got some sermon notes uh, for you. Um, so we see here, love stands against false teaching. Remember last week, if you were here with us, uh, we looked at the context of First Timothy, and we answered a couple questions to be able to understand where this book is heading. The first thing we said is that the author is Paul, and he's writing to Timothy. Timothy was at this church in Ephesus, and he has some instructions for Timothy um, how to help this church. What's the purpose of the letter to Timothy? Well, Paul wants him, we said in chapter 3, he said, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church. He, he is writing Timothy so that he can show the Ephesian church how to live as God's people. And remember, we said we're called to be the pillar and buttress, we had some fun with that word, the pillar and buttress of truth, to hold up the truth, to believe the truth, to live according to the truth, to teach and proclaim the truth. And what did we say? That it's a, what is that truth? What is the letter about, the content? He said it's the mystery of godliness, the secret that was being revealed as to how the world could rightly worship and reflect God's image. And how did he say we do that? It's through the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He gave it to us in a poem form. Uh, it's only what Jesus has done for us. He's the way, the truth, and the life that we could be godly. Now, one of the specific reasons that it mattered so much that the Ephesian church would believe and live according to the truth is because there was some false teaching that had crept in to the church. And we see this here at the outset. He said, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons, there were individuals in the church, not to teach any different doctrine. Now, this Greek word is actually one word, uh, and it means the first part of it's hetero. So when we say hetero, like a heterosexual, different, attracted to the other, the different sex, it, and, and the second part is didaskaleo, which means teaching. If you've heard the word, uh, did I'm totally making up the pronunciation. Uh, so it's different teaching. You've heard the word didactic. So it is when, when that teaching is contrary, when it's different to what you heard from us, contrary to what exactly? Again, it's contrary to the gospel. Anytime that they hear something that is not lining up with the gospel, then they say, you better be buttressing support what is true. God's, Paul's charge, which he said is from God, remember, to Timothy here, is to command certain people from, to stop teaching the gospel, a different gospel, a different truth. 
And Paul says part of, of how, how you live according to the truth of the gospel is by calling out the lies, the things that are not in accordance with that gospel. Now, we live in a postmodern culture where we would say, many people in our culture today would say, that, well, there is no absolute truth. Nietzsche said it. Uh, many even before him had said it as well. The irony is that to say there is not an absolute truth is an absolute truth in and of itself. To make a claim that there is no, that's an absolute truth. Now, just like our culture might say love is love is love is love, we could also say truth is truth is truth is truth until you disagree with that person and then you find out, well, maybe they don't actually uh, believe that all truth is of equal merit. Now, where Paul says, no, truth is truth is truth is not true. God, just like God is love, God is truth. And he says, the gospel that I'm preaching by God's authority is the claim that Jesus is the truth the way and the life. And so it is by nature an exclusive truth. If we're saying he's the only way to God, the only truth, then, then ergo, no other way will lead you to God. He says in verse 5, he says it this way, the aim of our charge to stop people from telling these lies is love. He says, my motivation here in this, that this charge is actually love. And he's being consistent because if the gospel alone leads you to life, then every other message that's contrary to the gospel leads you where? It leads you to death. And so it's not unloving to stop someone from teaching and believing and moving toward a message that hurdles you toward your death. In fact, that's the most loving thing you can do. See, if someone's running off a, a, down a path that leads to a, a thousand-foot drop off a cliff, it's not loving to say, well, I'm, who am I to stand in the way, right? Your truth is your truth, right? You take that path, brother. No, the most loving thing you can do in that scenario is to tackle a fool, right? Stop him from hurtling toward his death. Now, of course, uh, we need to guard against arrogance. Um, we, we can be arrogant in our handling of the truth, I remember in Bible school, I went to Bible school for two years, thought I knew everything, right? And came back from school and, and you know, it's calling out heretics left and white, right? It was like spiritual whack-a-mole, right? Heretic, false teacher, right? And I just thought I knew, had it all figured out. Four semesters of Bible school, not even accredited. Don't tell the elders. Um, now, we, we, we can be equally arrogant when we say, just, just as we can say, I, I have the market corner on truth, and I know every nook and cranny of it, we can be equally as arrogant when we say, well, you can't know anything for sure. That nobody can know anything for sure. And often at the heart of that attitude is a simple attempt to deny that there is a God, that there is a standard of truth. Because, of course, if we can eliminate the reality of a God, then, then we're no longer accountable to that God, Right? There is no standard of truth, and then I, then I can actually do whatever I want. And it might sound loving at first to say, yeah, just do whatever you want, man. Do you do you. But it's not loving to let a sinner do whatever they want, right? Like if you have a four-year-old in your house, it's not loving to let them do whatever they want. If they're running the house and it's ice cream for every meal and nobody ever has to go to sleep, you guys will be dead by Tuesday, Right? So Paul tells Timothy, out of love, you got to tell those false teachers to stop. And then he addresses here two particular false teachings in our text that we want to look at this morning. So the first lie, two lies, false teachings that he wants to address. The first one is, the lie is, I would say it this way, what I think is more important than what God says. 
that what I think is more important than what God says. Uh, when I was in high school, there was a girl in our youth group. Her and I used to love to go back and forth and debate. Our favorite topic was the most urgent, pressing topic of the day, uh, whether or not cheerleading was a sport. Okay? Very important. And I would say if these are your cheerleaders, then yes. Uh, but we, we went on, a, as a youth group, we went on a mission trip to, uh, to the foreign nation of Seward. And we, uh, we were there eating at a subway for lunch. And uh, the two of us turned to our favorite debate. And I yell, it is not a sport. She said, yes, it is. It's harder than golf. Right? You try to do a backflip. And I'm like, it's not about degree of difficulty. And we just went all around and around and around. And we got so loud. <laughs> and I'm not making the story. The manager of Subway kicked us out of the restaurant. That you're no longer, you're no welcome, no longer welcome at the sandwich shop. And, and now, there are a couple things wrong with this picture, right? First of all, my motive was wrong. As I'm engaging in that debate, what's the purpose? I want to be right. I want to win, right? I didn't care about the integrity of the definition of sport. I wanted to build myself up. And, and, and probably had some weird crush on her. I was trying to win her over and it did not exactly work. Um, but my focus was also wrong, right? We're on a stinking mission trip. The whole purpose is to tell and show people the love of Jesus here in Seward. And here I am screaming at one of our team members. What a terrible testimony to the, to the subway staff and customers there. The very people that in theory were trying to reach for Jesus. Spoiler alert, nobody got saved in that subway sandwich shop that day. Now, Timothy, Timothy, similarly here, Paul is telling him, charge certain people to stop spreading these lies. And what he says in verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless speculation, or endless genealogies which promote speculations. They lead to vain discussion, is what he says in verse 6. Now, we don't know a lot about these myths and genealogies, exactly what he's referring to here. Uh, we do know from the context that very likely he's referring to these Jewish teachers. Uh, you're going to see in a couple verses why uh, we, we would argue that. Uh, Donald Guthrie, he says that, that many times there were were some Jews who loved, they got hung up on these mythical stories that they would fabricate out of their genealogies. Remember the genealogies, that long list of names in the Bible that you can't pronounce, you kind of just skip, and then kind of skip over to the part of the Bible you understand, right? So, but to them, these genealogies meant a lot. This was their family history, the people, God's chosen people, and so they put a lot of stock into these, but sometimes they would spin, they would take these names on the list. Now, you don't have to read these verses on the screen, I just want to show you this list from Matthew chapter 1, that they might take a list like this and start cherry-picking names off the list and start spinning these, these elaborate discussions and stories based on these names. So maybe you had your two brothers here, Ezekiel and Lemuel, and they're having a debate. And Ezekiel says, man, have you, you check out Jeconiah. This dude was the man. He was the greatest fisherman of all time, once caught a million fish with his eyes closed. And by the way, he's my grandpa to the 14th power. And Lemuel says, oh, you might think Jeconiah was something, but what about Akim? Akim, they called him Akim the fishing machine, right? <laughs> this dude was way better. And I'm from his line even more specifically. And he, oh, he couldn't fish his way out of a paper bag. And they, back and forth they would go arguing who was the greatest fisherman on the list or whatever it might be. They're, they're making these stories up and then arguing and debating based on a name on the genealogical chart. What Paul would tell Timothy to tell Ezekiel and Lemuel is to cut it out. Avoid 
empty debates, I would say. Verse 4 says these, these promote speculations. That word is debate. It's an argument. Just arguing for argument's sake. And he says, if you veer from the truths of Scripture, he says, this is what happens. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion. That word's meaningless, empty. This is not profitable conversation. This is just argument. And why? Why would they have these debates? Why would they have this endless discussion? Well, one of the motives, he says next in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They think they know, they do not. I like the term pooling ignorance. That's what's going on here. Now, their motive, as, as based on what we're seeing in the text, the motive is just to be right, right? It's just to win. Uh, just like my cheerleading debate, right? They're, they're building themselves up. This is, this is pride. It's based on empty speculation. And the, and the focus here is, is on themselves, right? Ultimately, pride looks at oneself. Now, they're talking about the Bible, right? Isn't it good to talk about the Bible? Well, it is. But their focus was off. And instead of simply saying, what has God clearly shown us in this passage and what does he want to know? They spin it into these, these outlandish tales. It's this idea of, well, it means to me how many times do we hear that? Well, to me it means. And it's empty, vain debate over something that the world is not, the word is not even trying to talk about. This list in Matthew 1, it, it's not about Achim. It's not about Jeconiah. This, the, the purpose of this list was to show a line of people that God had faithfully preserved to lead to who? The last guy on the list, Jesus, who was born called the Christ. This list is about Jesus. It's not about who the greatest fisherman is. the truth, the first, the truth we get from this is what God says is more important than what I think. It's the opposite of the lie, right? Paul tells Timothy that with a love that stands against falsehood and for truth, the motive matters in your engagement with other people. The motive matters. And look at what he says here in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, this is not an impure, self-seeking motive that's looking out for number one. The reason we engage with people in conversation is not to build ourselves up. He says the motive is to build others up. In fact, 1 Corinthians tells us that. It says love is not self-seeking. Love rejoices with the truth. And when people discover God's truth, not just that they would agree with my side of the argument. I remember when I first got on Facebook, <laughs> I saw, I saw someone post something that I thought was foolish and ignorant, and I sought to tell them so in the comment section where all meaningful discussions happen. I thought I had a respectful, thoughtful counterpoint, right? I just wanted to shed the light a little bit here. And, uh, it was met with two words, one of which you will never find in your Bible, okay? It, this was not a discussion, right? It was, it's a shouting match. And oftentimes we see on social media, what we don't see is meaningful back and forth dialogue. We see debate, we see angry ranting and just simply alternating monologues. It's not a place where we're really listening to each other by and large. One attitude says, I want to be right. I want to build myself up. And the other one says, let's humbly seek the truth and learn together. The aim is to build the other up. And the focus, uh, uh, 
is not on myself. It's on, on God himself and his word, the word of God. Um, you know, often I'll be in a small group Bible study and we'll read a passage and I'll say, you know, what do you think the passage is saying about X, Y, or, or Z? And many times uh, somebody sitting there in the Bible study, Bible on the lap, will look up and go, well, I think. And, and, and what's the point? We're looking for my idea, my thought. Where should, our eyes should be down on the text saying, what does God say? We're looking at his word, at his truth, not what we think that it might mean. What God says and what we can know, certainly from his word, is more important than my own speculation. Verse 4 says it this way. Uh, they don't devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Here's the contrast. Rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What does that mean? Well, the word stewardship, it means managing someone else's household. Remember last week we said, this is how you should behave in the household of God. Whose house? God's house. Whose house? God's house. And what we see here is that the house belongs to God and we're managing his house, his plan, his purposes. So how do we do that? He says, by faith. We trust. And what is the aim of our trust? God himself and what he has revealed to us. We say, God, what is your plan and purpose? Not my ideas. What does your certain word tell us? So when you're engaging in a conversation with somebody, these three timeless questions, you've heard your mom tell them before, is it true? The first thing we want to ask ourselves is, is what we're debating, what we're talking about, even are we dealing with truth? And remember the answer, you don't look up for that answer, you look down at the certain word of God, which Peter says is not based on a myth. It's not man's made up narratives and ideas. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, the, the, the truth that I'm telling you, I was there. Peter saw the risen Jesus. This is based on the factual evidence that Jesus is alive. And over 500 people witnessed him, Corinthians says. See, our faith is not built on some fabrication or whim. It's on the eyewitness account of the risen Jesus. So we ask, is this true? The second question we ask is, is it kind? Is it kind? We can, we can talk about true things in a brutal fashion. The question is, is my motive to build others up, that they might know Jesus, grow toward Jesus in Christ-likeness, or to be right, to win. And we used to love in Bible school to debate man's free will versus God's sovereignty. We'd go into areas that you cannot be super conclusive on, but we just love to debate it. You can even use God's word in a way that just is a boxing match. And lastly, is it necessary this is, this is a good litmus test. A lot of times we get distracted by those genealogical fishermen debates, right? And so many times on Facebook we're arguing things and, and focusing on things. We are majoring on the minors, brothers and sisters. And we need to get our focus back on Jesus and accomplishing his mission. We should be asking him, how can we walk into Wildwood? Get your background checked, probably first of all, right? And, and preach the truth these men and women who need to hear the gospel, to be talking to one another about Jesus, right? So is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? That should guide our discussion, says Paul here. So the first lie is that what I think is more important than what God says. The second lie, lie we see is that the law saves people. The law saves people. Now Paul talks about those desiring to be teachers of the law here in verse 7. And he goes, speaking of using the law to teach, and this is what he has to say in verse 8. Now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. A little bit of a pun there, a play on words. It's if, if they use the law lawfully, the legal code in a legal way. Now he says the law is good if you use it right. So what way is the right way? 
I have a good friend um, who, for anonymity's sake, we're just going to call Jacob. Just leave it there. Now, I love Jacob, but he is the slowest driver on the face of the earth. Uh, Jacob definitely does not need the speed limit, right? It's not an area he struggles in. Uh, he often is driving 10 to 15 miles under the speed limit. And not, not the ice, summer too, okay, all the time. And uh, he didn't, see, Jacob does not need the local authorities to threaten him with a, with a ticket. He does not need the uh, sign that tells him, if, in fact, if anything, he needs those speed minimum signs. You know, he needs one of those, right? I was like, dude, I love you, but you just got passed by a bicycle. Right? We have problems. Uh, my brother, on the other hand, lock him up, right? Put him in, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, people who aren't, are, are doing what is right, they don't need a rule or a law to restrain them, right? They're already walking in accordance with what they're supposed to be doing. And that's what he's saying here. The law is for the lawbreaker. Now, verse 9, he says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, the right, the one who's keeping the law, but it's for the one who's breaking it, the lawless. Now, law can mean a lot of things in the Bible. And like we talk about with context, what is, what is the context of the word? The law can mean a general rule. Like we would talk about the law of thermodynamics, the principle, a general rule. It could also mean the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It could also mean the law of Moses, the 613 commands that God gave the people of Israel through Moses. It could also even more specifically refer to the Ten Commandments, the moral law that he begins that, those commandments with. Now, here in context, and remember, we look at the book for the answer. We don't look up and what we think. I believe Paul is most specifically here talking about the Ten Commandments, and I would say that because in the next two verses, he's going to reference at least nine of the ten. And you look at this, I want to make a little comparison chart here on these two tablets. Uh, from what God said, the ten, the ten rules, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, in Exodus 20 with what Paul is about to say here in Timothy. And look at the connection. Remember, the first two laws were, have no other God before me and, and no idols. And look at what he references the law is for. He says it's for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners. Where he said godliness is to a right worship of God. So if you're not worshiping God rightly or worshiping an idol, you are ungodly, not right worship of, of our true Jehovah God. And the third law, don't profane God's name. Number four, keep the Sabbath holy. Who are the next people he addresses? For the unholy and profane. Then he says, uh, number, number five was honor your parents. And he gives an extreme example for those who strike their fathers and mothers. Some translations say who kill their father and mother. That is the farthest thing from honoring them. Uh, then he says, don't murder. And, and, and he says, and Paul says it's for murderers. The next commandment, do not commit adultery. He says the law is for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. Uh, number eight, those, he said, don't steal. And he says the law is for enslavers. That word can mean kidnap, to take another person. Well, the highest form of, of stealing. Don't bear false witness, number nine says. And, and he says it's for the liars and the perjurers, those who bear false witness. And the last one is don't covet. We don't necessarily see a direct connection over there with the last one. So like Jacob with the speed limit, Paul says those who have no bent toward killing, toward stealing, toward lying, toward disobeying God, they don't need a law that says don't steal, don't kill, disobey uh, God, right? They're already doing it. They don't need a law to tell them to, to, to do it or to not do the wrong things, right? But here's the reality. Who, who, on this, who, keep, who has perfectly kept this list? No one. Nobody has kept the heart of God's moral law. There was one man. There was one man, Jesus. Paul underlines in verse 8, he says, the law is good. And we need to, sometimes we have a misunderstanding that there's something wrong with the law. That the law was the Old Testament way by works, and the New Testament, salvation by grace. There's nothing wrong with the law. 
Paul underlines this in, in Romans 7. He says the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There is nothing wrong with the law. In fact, if we obeyed the law, we would be holy like God is holy. The, the, the law reflects the character of God. This is who he is. And as we were created in his image, if we were to completely walk in the way of the law, we would be holy like God is holy. The law is good. But we must understand what the law is good for and what it's not good for. So you think about an x-ray. Uh, years ago, I had an x-ray that showed that I had avascular necrosis in my hips, that the joints were just deteriorating. And it was, I was told that within five years, I wouldn't be walking at all. Now, the x-ray was awesome for showing me the depth of my need, my, my need for new hips. Like, I knew I couldn't walk right, but I had no idea that in five years I wouldn't be walking at all. The x-ray showed me just how deep my problem was. But the x-ray obviously couldn't give me new hips, right? That would be an awesome x-ray. And all of a sudden I'm just like doing my, you know, Shakir, I don't know what that was. Um, the law is good, but he says if you use it lawfully. A couple of things the law does. The law restrains sin. So we have a, a speed limit, all right, out on the road, and it helps people slow down. It doesn't stop them from speeding. The laws that we have in place in the land help restrain sin. They don't solve the problem, but they do restrain it. The second thing it does is it reveals sin. It reveals sin. Uh, Dwayne Litfin says it this way, the law is for those who remain unconvinced of their sin. That was really helpful, a way to put it that I saw. The law is for those who remain unconvinced of their sin. You might have people who say, well, I'm no saint, but I'm certainly no serial killer. There are, in fact, I can think of a couple people down my own street that, I have, that are worse than I am. And we can play this game where we think that maybe we're not that bad. And so the law says, okay, you want to play that game. Romans 7 says the law is there to show how exceedingly sinful sin is. And so God takes an x-ray of your heart and says, okay, let's play that game. Let's, let's look at the law. And he would say, have you lied? Have you ever stolen something? Jesus talks about lusting uh, and, and anger, showing that it, at, by, by, very, in, at, by your heart, you are a, an adulterer and a murderer. And do you always honor God in everything that you do? Do you worship him with every fiber of your being every single day? And what the law does, it shows the avascular necrosis of your heart. It shows that we are law breakers. We are not law keepers. All fall short of God's glorious standard. It reveals sin. It restrains sin. What it cannot do, it cannot rescue us from sin. And it cannot restore us to God. Now, basically what we're saying here is that the law can show you the problem, but it can't offer you the solution, right? The problem isn't with the law. The law is holy and good. The problem is with me. And this is what Romans 8 says. The law of Moses was unable to save us, not because it was an insufficient law. Why? Because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Because I am a sinner. I cannot, one who is of sinful flesh cannot keep that which is holy and good. This would be like me if I was working at a carnival and I told this sweet little girl, I'm sorry, you're not tall enough. Look how sad she is. This is so sad. If I told her, I'm sorry, sweetheart, you, you're not allowed to ride the ride. You're too short. Now, it's true, right? I'm the bearer of bad but true news. I don't want her flying out of the spinstermatic thing, right? So it, it's good that she, but what I can't do, I can show her that she doesn't measure up, but I can't grow her, right? I can't make her tall enough to ride the ride. I just have to tell her the bad news. And this is essentially what the, the law can do. It can tell us how we're supposed to live but it can't actually enable us to live that way. So the question is, in my life, am I using the law lawfully? The law has a good place, a right place, 
but we must use it lawfully. And anytime we set up a standard to say, if I keep these rules, God will love me. God will accept me. God will approve of me. Or we do that with somebody else and create a standard for them and say, if they keep all these rules, then God will love them or I'll accept them. And we're not using the law lawfully. I love you enough to tell you that it's not true. It's false teaching. You're heading toward a cliff of death. But there is a truth. This is where we want to land the plane. The truth is that the law shows people they need to be saved. It cannot save them, but it can show the need to be saved. And we know who saves, right? Jesus alone is the one who saves. In verse 10 and 11, this is where he lands the plane. The law is for, and he said all those, the lawlessness that was there, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Anything that is opposed, that's different doctrine, than what? The gospel. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There is good news that shows us the glory of God and gives us access into it. But he says it's not by keeping the law. See, the x-ray that I took, uh, that was taken, I didn't take it, uh, showed me how bad the hip problem was. That's what led me to get surgery. The x-ray couldn't save me. Dr. Jimmy Chow could save me, right? And Dr. Jimmy Chow got me up and dancing and bebopping and scatting, right? So the, the x-ray pointed me to the one who could give me new hips. This is what Romans 8 says. Law, God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son as a sacrifice for our sins. We couldn't pay the price, right? We couldn't access God, but Jesus kept the law for us. He laid down his life for our law-breaking ways. Galatians 3 says, Therefore the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified not by works of the law, but by faith, believing that Jesus did for me what I could never do. See, the law cannot get us to God. It cannot make us godly, bring us in a right, worshipful relationship. But it does point us to Jesus. And Jesus can make us right with God based on his righteousness, not our own. The law is the x-ray that points us to Dr. Jesus who gives us what we needed. And just like I needed new hips, he gives us a new heart. It's a heart transplant. Ezekiel 36 promised. He said, this is what's coming, the new covenant. Because you can't keep the old one. Here's this new covenant. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And what will this spirit be? He says, I'll put my spirit within you. God himself says, I will enter into your life and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear that? I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart that walks according to mine. Now, it's important to note here, he's not saying the law, excuse me, the new heart and spirit doesn't enable us to go back and put ourselves under the law of Moses. What he's saying is we're able to keep the heart of it. Remember, Jesus said in Mark, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. They'll burst. The new spirit we're given is not bring us back to the old way. But what it means is that now with Christ in us, we're going to live a totally new life. And what does that life look like? It's where we bear the fruit of the Spirit, right? Spirit of Jesus is in us. What is that Spirit? There's the fruit? He says it's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. He says when you're walking, when Jesus is living through you, this is the kind of person, this is the kind of fruit you will bear. And you know what he says? There is no law against these things. When we're walking with Jesus, we're going to manifest the character of God because the character of God in Christ is in us. But what did we say was the summation of the law? 
Love the Lord your God. You guys quoted it to me earlier. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you're walking in the Spirit, when Jesus is living his life through yours, you're going to be keeping the heart of the law. And it's so much sweeter because it's not just the external keeping of the law. It's actually within, from the heart, we will be the kind of person that rightly worships God and walks with him, holy as he is holy. And how does this happen? There's nothing that you and I can do on our own. We cannot accomplish it by working harder, keeping more rules. It comes from what Paul says in the very beginning of his intro. He says, Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. But by his grace, his favor, he, God had to approach us in grace. We could not earn it to him. And he shows us his mercy, his, the compassion that Jesus showed by dying for us, doing for us in mercy what we could never do through obedience. And what does it result in? Peace with God, a restored relationship, not based on my ability to be good, but on what Jesus did on my behalf. Jesus showed us brothers and sisters, how to lovingly stand against false teaching. He spoke boldly but gently against the truth until it got him killed. He cared more about what his father said than what anybody else thought. And Jesus came to do for you and I what the law could never do. He doesn't oppose the law. Remember, he said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. That I could be for you what you could never do through your own works. Father, we thank you so much that you sent Jesus to be for us what we could never be. Father, we look in our world right now, and it is so full of division, of hatred, of screaming matches, of endless speculations and vain arguments. Father, may we not look like this world, but that we might rightly bear the image of God that we were created to be and now can be in Christ. Father, we know there's a place to have conversation and to disagree with people and to stand up for truth. But you say to do it here from a good conscience and a pure heart, one that aims to seize the other person, not as the enemy to defeat, but a sinner who needs rescued. May our aim be to build others up that they might know the hope and the peace and the joy that comes from knowing Jesus the only law keeper, the righteousness that he has given to us so that we could worship you rightly, so that we could reflect your heart in the way that we live and talk and speak. May we be a people that do not believe the lie that the law can save us, but embrace the truth that Jesus does and therefore lovingly point out to the world when they're heading toward a cliff. May we major on the majors and be a people who stay on mission with Jesus. We want to be marked. We want the world to know we are Christians by our love, a love that stands for truth, but just like Jesus does it, not by demanding that we're right, by laying down our rights for the love of the people around us. We can only do that by your grace and your mercy through which we experience your peace. And it's all in the name of the way, the truth, the life. And his name is Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.